Well, thank you all so much. Good evening to you all. I'm delighted to be here to spend some time with you, meditating on God's word and reflecting upon the greatest sacrament, the most august sacrament, the most blessed sacrament of the Holy Eucharist over the next two nights for tonight and tomorrow night. I would also like to thank Father Stewart for having me here and being present with you and inviting me. Uh, hopefully we'll learn a thing or three and have a good time while we're doing it, amen? Okay, so can everyone hear me? Am I clear? Okay, because there's a bit of an echo from my end, but I just wanna make sure that you guys can hear. So let's go ahead and begin with the what of our Catholic belief concerning the Eucharist. What do we believe about the Eucharist? Well, as many of you probably already know, being raised and taught by a good old sister in your Catholic education, right? And from that Baltimore catechism, that before the words of consecration on the altar, what we have is mere bread and wine. But after the words of consecration, what was bread and wine now becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And good old Catholics, what's that word? What's that fancy schmancy theological term we use to describe that change? Transubstantiation, that's right, amen. What that means is that with the words of consecration, the whatness, the reality of bread, substance and philosophy we call it, becomes the very reality of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Pope St. Paul VI, in his encyclical Mysidium Fidei, he used another fancy schmancy philosophical term where he calls it an ontological change. The being, B-E-I-N-G, kind of sounds like being, you know? The being of bread changes into the being of Jesus's body and blood under the appearance of bread and wine by virtue of divine power manifesting itself in, on this earth through the hands of the priests. That's the what, that's the reality. And check this out, based on that teaching, because of that belief, the Catholic Church teaches, brothers and sisters, that we give worship or adoration to the Eucharist. Again, Pope St. Paul VI in that same encyclical Mysterium Fidei teaches us that we give the quote-unquote cult of Latria. Latria is the Latin term for worship or adoration. The honor that we give to God alone as the creator, as opposed to dulia, which is an honor that's appropriate and due to a creature, not the creator. That's the kind of honor we give to Mary and the saints and all that stuff, right? Latria is the honor that we give to God alone. And Pope Paul VI teaches that we give that sort of adoration to the Eucharist. The Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms this 
in paragraph 1380, quoting Pope St. John Paul II in one of his documents where he talks about Eucharistic worship and adoration. Speaking of Eucharistic adoration, you might want to sign up for the Eucharistic adoration that they're trying to develop here in the parish. Hopefully after tonight's talk and tomorrow night's talk, you'll see why it's such a good thing to adore our Lord and be prompted to sign up for that perpetual adoration, okay? I got it in. <laughs> so adoration, now why is this important? Brothers and sisters, hear me. Based on what the church commands you and me to do, namely worship the Eucharist, if that ain't Jesus, then we might as well lock up these doors, shut it down, and go home. Because if that ain't Jesus, folks, then our church, Holy Mother Church, is commanding us to worship a false god, a piece of bread. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to belong to any church that's commanding us to worship a piece of bread. Amen? So you, hopefully you can see why this is so important to get it right about the Eucharist. It's not just some highfalutin doctrinal stuff that theologians contemplate in the ivory tower. The rubber hits the road because it's a matter of worshiping the one true God made flesh, Jesus Christ, our piece of bread. And so given now that we know the what of the Eucharist, the question now becomes, well, why do we need to have a Eucharistic revival within the church here in the United States? Well, as many of you know, a few years back, there was a study that was done and a survey and was um, Catholics who go by the label, at least Catholic, were surveyed as to what they believe about the Eucharist. And 69% of those surveyed said that they believe the Eucharist is merely, and I underscore merely, only a symbol of Jesus' body and blood. 69% of those who go by the label Catholic, who see themselves as Catholic, believe that the Eucharist is merely a symbol or a representation of Jesus' body and blood. That's a high percentage, which conflicts and is not what the church teaches, infallibly so, I might add. Does the church teach that the Eucharist has a symbolic value? Yes. That's why we call it a sacrament. Remember, good old Baltimore catechism stuff again? What is a sacrament? A sense-perceptible sign that effects, that communicates what it's signing, what it's signifying, communicating an invisible reality through a visible reality, right? The Eucharist has symbolic value. What does bread signify? Nourishment. Well, who is our nourishment? Jesus. But in the sacrament, it's not just the sign but what is being signified is made present. So the bread signifies Jesus as our nourishment, but in the sacrament, it makes Jesus our nourishment 
present under the appearance of bread. And so given this survey and a realization, man, we have a lot of Catholics who weren't quite mapping on with what the church infallibly teaches and that we need to believe it's time for a little revival. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's time for a revival, a Eucharistic revival to awaken within people the belief in our God and our Savior, the creator of the entire universe present with us and among us in the Eucharist to inspire us to a deeper degree, to inspire us to worship. And for those of us who do worship our Lord in the Eucharist, to go deeper in that worship and to foster intimacy in our relationship with our Lord in the Eucharist. Hence the Eucharistic Bible, hence your Lenten mission to reflect, to ponder, to meditate, to pray with regard to the Jesus in the Eucharist and his real presence. So what we're gonna do over the next two nights tonight we're gonna focus on the biblical evidence for this great mystery of faith. Because the question arises once we have the what, then the question becomes, well, what's the evidence for that what? Did Jesus actually reveal this mystery of faith to us, which we profess as Catholics? And the answer is yes. And we're gonna look at some of that evidence tonight from sacred scripture. Okay, now many of the citations that I'll be sharing with you and the sort of the exegesis that I go through in the commentary on scripture, it's documented in the handout that you have, right? So, you know, you might be thinking, wow, all these Bible passages, I could never remember that. Well, it's on the handout. So you have something to take home with you and ponder over, okay? So tonight we're gonna focus heavily on the biblical evidence for our Lord's real presence in the Eucharist. And then tomorrow night, we're going to look at some scientific evidence that our Lord has given us through miracles to confirm what we already believe based on the authority of Jesus Christ, namely that he is truly present in the Eucharist. So you don't want to miss tomorrow night when we look at the scientific evidence via Eucharistic miracles, where the appearance of bread and wine changes into what appears to be human flesh and human blood, which is then scientifically verified to be human flesh and to be human blood. We're going to go through several of those Eucharistic miracles. But tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus. Amen? And hopefully Jesus is good enough for us. All right? Let's start with the words of institution themselves. At the Last Supper, we're all familiar with them as Catholics. We hear it every time we come to Mass when our Lord takes bread and wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood. But the question arises, how are we to understand these words? One possible interpretation that some Christians have proposed is that all Jesus meant when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, is that the bread and the wine represent, merely represent or symbolize his body and his blood. Whereas other Christians like us as Catholics who believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, we believe that when Jesus said these words that he meant to change bread and wine into his body and his blood. So a very important question is, well, which of these two interpretations is the correct view? 
Which of these two interpretations should we embrace and adopt as Christians? What did Jesus intend here? Now, the first view, the idea that Jesus merely intended his words to signify or represent his body and his blood, that his words were to be taken in a figurative way, that has some credibility to it. And we have to be sympathetic to this. Many Catholics will appeal to the, you know, whenever they're asked, where in the Bible is the belief in the Eucharist, or the real presence in the Eucharist? Well, Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer than that. Wait a minute. You know, if I were to take out my phone right now and show you a picture of my lovely wife, Jacqueline, and I say, this is my wife, you wouldn't automatically conclude, man, Corlo just performed a miracle and made his wife substantially present under the pixels of the phone. You wouldn't do that, right? You would automatically conclude and assume that I'm using the verb to be for the sake of this signifies, this represents my wife. It's a picture of my wife, right? So too, when Jesus says, this is my body, it doesn't necessarily follow automatically that he just changed bread into his body. It could be that he means by those words, this merely represents my body. You can kind of feel that it sounds like a plausible interpretation. Hence, many of our Protestant friends or those who don't believe in the real presence will look at that same passage, but they ain't coming to the same conclusion as us. So why should we believe as Catholics that Jesus intended these words to mean that he changed bread into his body, wine into his blood? Well, folks, in order to understand and shed light on these words at the institution, we kind of have to go back a year in Jesus's ministry when he first promised to give us the Eucharist in a synagogue in Capernaum. And this is recorded by John the Evangelist in John chapter 6, the famous bread of life discourse, particularly verses 49 through 66. And that's the text where Jesus begins the discourse by saying, I am the bread of life, there in verse 48. And then in 49, he says, your fathers ate the man in the desert and they died. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then we're told in verse 52, the Jews struggled and quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus responds and says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food indeed. My blood is true drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As I live by the father, so he who eats me will live by me. And he who eats this bread will live forever. And then, of course, the disciples in verse 60 say, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? To which Jesus says, does this offend you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? I tell you that my words are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. And then we're told that the disciples got up, walked away. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you leave me as well? I submit to you that this text right here will shed light on what he means at the Last Supper. And the key words are, how do we, are the key words in this text is Jesus's 
terminology of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. How are we to understand these words? Some Christians will say, well, what Jesus meant by flesh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was speaking in an idiomatic way that this language was to be taken as an idiom to convey the meaning that if you come to me, you will no longer hunger, right? If you believe in me, you will no longer thirst. So to eat Jesus, quote unquote, to eat his flesh is to come to him. To drink his blood, quote unquote, means to believe in him. So that's one interpretation. We'll call that the, the idiomatic interpretation of Jesus's words. But then there's another interpretation that is a realistic understanding of the words, that Jesus intended these words to be taken in a realistic way, not as an idiom. In other words, the bottom line, Jesus intended for us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He doesn't reveal how yet, but that we must do so. He, he asserts there in this text. So the question becomes, which interpretation here in John 6 should we take and embrace? Well, I wanna walk you through some reasons why we should interpret Jesus's words in the bread of life discourse in John 6 with a realistic understanding and that Jesus is not using his words nor intending them to be taken as an idiom that is to say, just come to him and believe in him. Reason number one, Jesus affirms the literal understanding of his audience. Jesus affirms the realistic understanding of his audience. He does not ease the difficulty that they have, but he affirms the difficulty and in fact, even up the ante. So let's consider the text. Remember how I just said, in verse 42, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? And your fathers ate manna in the desert and they died. And then he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then the Jews immediately erupted and said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're freaking out over this stuff, okay? Their feathers are a bit ruffled. So the question is, well, how are they understanding Jesus? Are they taking him to be speaking figuratively here or in a realistic way? I think the latter, right? The realistic way. They're taking, they're having some literal thoughts here. They're freaking out. So the question becomes, does Jesus ease the difficulty by clarifying his terms? No, he actually affirms the difficulty and the ante by responding, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, I will, has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food indeed and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As I live by the Father, so he who eats me will live by me. The bread that I will give forever, the bread, uh, you shall eat this bread and live forever. Six times in six verses, Jesus uses the same language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood that caused the difficulty in the first place. Any teachers in here? A teacher, I'm a teacher, I'm a teacher. I teach ninth and 10th graders at the Holy Family Classical School. I've taught seventh and eighth grade theology. I teach youth, I teach adults. I'm a teacher. If you're struggling with something I'm saying, do you think it would be prudent and wise for me to use the same terminology that caused the difficulty in the first place six times when you're having the difficulty? That probably would not be the best way to go about it, right? 
Jesus was the perfect teacher, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would reaffirm his language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, knowing that the Jews were having difficulty with this instruction to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, our Protestant friends who are very well read in scripture, amen? And in fact, put us Catholics to shame a little bit and we gotta catch up. But a very sharp Protestant may respond, and this is a good counter to that, our interpretation that we're offering here, and may respond, but wait a minute. In John chapter two, verses 15 through 21, Jesus there says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, right? And then the, the Jews respond and says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How do you expect to destroy it and raise it up in three days? And then John tells us he was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, right? In that situation, there was a misunderstanding between what Jesus said and how his audience understood it, right? And notice there that Jesus doesn't offer any sort of clarification. He leaves the Jews in the darkness of their misunderstanding. Now, the plausible explanation there for why Jesus left them in the darkness of their misunderstanding is because of the hardness of their hearts. And there's evidence that would suggest that Jesus knew that they would manipulate his words at his trial and twist his testimony in order to condemn him. So given the hardness of their hearts, he left them alone. So maybe perhaps in John chapter six, Jesus is talking to the Jews. That's John's label for the critics of Jesus. Those who are hard hearted and obstinately opposed to Jesus and his preaching. And they are the ones having the difficulty. So some would suggest that perhaps Jesus doesn't clarify the literal thoughts of the Jews because of the hardness of their hearts and leaves them in the darkness of their misunderstanding as he left them in the darkness of their misunderstanding in John 2. You follow me so far? That's a good possible counter there to our interpretation of John 6. So how might we begin to respond to that? Well, first of all, Jesus repeats six times in six verses the same language that caused the difficulty in the first place, right? So that doesn't jive very well with this possible interpretation that Jesus is leaving them in the darkness of their misunderstanding. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would just keep using the same language over and over again. Secondly, Jesus, according to the Greek text, the language actually intensifies when Jesus begins to respond to the Jews having difficulty. Many of you probably, have, if you do any sort of reading in Catholic literature, you may have come across this. But in verse 52, the Jews say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In verse 54, when Jesus starts reaffirming to eat his flesh, the Greek verb for eat goes from phago, which was used previously, to trogo. Phago is the use used more generically for eating. Trogo means to gnaw and to chew. So the question would become, why would Jesus intensify the language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood if he's trying to ease their difficulty or even leaving them in their, the darkness of their misunderstanding? That does not make sense. But I think the real 
key detail here is that folks, it wasn't only the Jews who were having a difficulty with Jesus' teaching to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Who else had the difficulty? His disciples. Would Jesus leave his disciples in the darkness of their misunderstanding? Probably not. I don't think that would be a reasonable conclusion. Because these were people who were believing in Jesus and following in Jesus. And it doesn't make sense that he would leave them in the darkness of their misunderstanding. Especially in light of such an important topic of how to go to heaven. Namely, eating his flesh and drinking his blood and receiving divine life. So when the disciples say, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? The question becomes, how does Jesus respond to their difficulty? Well, first of all, he acknowledges the difficulty. You think, you, do you take offense at this? What? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You, you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Pause. Think about that. What is Jesus saying here? You think this is hard. Jack, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's, that's my Cajun translation of that from Louisiana, right? You ain't seen nothing yet. The ascension is a difficult thing to believe given the miraculous nature. Some dude levitating up in the sky, Jesus levitating up in the sky and disappearing before their eyes. That's difficult to believe. And so getting back to our teacher modality here, why would Jesus appeal to something even more difficult to believe in order to ease the difficulty with his teaching to eat his flesh and drinking his blood? That doesn't make sense. Again, as a teacher, when my students, and listen, I've trial and error here, Jack. When my students are not understanding something that I'm trying to communicate, I have to try to appeal to what is more known and less difficult to understand in order to lead them to the knowledge that I want them to arrive at with the difficult thing. Does, does that make sense? But here Jesus doesn't do that. He actually appeals to something even more difficult to believe in response to the disciples who are having difficulty. And so therefore, it doesn't make sense that Jesus is easing the difficulty. He's affirming it and upping its ante, signaling to us that their thoughts, this is hard teaching. They got it right. Yeah, it's hard. Amen is hard because this is something of a supernatural nature. This is something that requires faith. And this, my friends, is why Jesus prepped his disciples prior to the bread of life discourse in verses 34 through 47, talking about the need to believe in him. If you hunger, come to me, verse 35 and 47. If you thirst, believe in me, 34 and 47. Jesus primes the pump for this teaching to eat his flesh and drink his blood with the necessity to have faith and believe in him. And then check this out. After his disciples are freaking out and having a hard time with this teaching and Jesus appeals to his ascension, Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are what? Spirit and life. The flesh is of no avail. Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples, bruh, you ain't going to believe this with your own kanaga. 
If you try to accept this from, if you try to accept this from an earthly perspective alone, you ain't going to get it. And the reason why I say that is because the flesh, not his flesh, the flesh is a Hebrew idiom for just that making judgments from an earthly perspective alone. John 8, 15, I think it's 8, 15. Sometimes I think it might be 15, 8, but I think it's 8, 15. You might want to fact check me on that. Where Jesus tells the Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. They're making judgments from an earthly perspective alone. And that's what Jesus means when he says the flesh avails nothing. Judging from reason alone will not get you to the doorstep of faith to embrace this mystery, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You need the gift of faith that is given by the Spirit. Hence our Lord says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They're spiritual. They're over and above what reason can attain by itself. And so, you know what Jesus says? Right after that, in verse 65, he says, no one can come to me except the Father draw him. That's in verse 65. And Jesus said the same thing in verse 44, creating two bookends. No one comes to me except the Father draw him. And right in the middle of those two bookends sandwiched in between is this great teaching to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which the flesh ain't going to get anything. It's not going to get you there. And so our Lord is articulating and explaining to the disciples, this is the difficult teaching, but we can only embrace it with the spirit, with the gift of faith, not according to the flesh. And you know what? The disciples still didn't embrace it. They got up and they walked no more with him. And what did Jesus not do? He didn't go after them. He didn't call them back. He let them go. Again, ask yourself, would Jesus actually let those who were believing in him and following in him and coming to recognize him as their Messiah, would he let them go space simply on a misunderstanding? No. Married folk. You got any married folk in here? Yeah. The, nobody's married in here. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. Listen, in marriage, whenever our spouses misunderstand us or I misunderstand my spouse, don't we want to clarify the misunderstanding? Is that reasonable? Yeah. Like, you misunderstood what I said, and so I want to try to clarify. Here, let me clarify what you're misunderstanding here. Now, why would I want to do that? Because I don't want you to walk away, right? My spouse might be misunderstanding me like, Carlo, you know, she fussing at me and I'm like, no, 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 it's just a misunderstanding. Or I might be misunderstanding her and I'm like, you know, fussing at her or whatever or being mean to her, God forbid. And she'd be like, no, you're misunderstanding me. Why do we clarify? Because we want to preserve the relationship. Would Jesus let his disciples walk away based upon a misunderstanding about something so important as receiving the divine life and the bread from heaven, his flesh. I don't think so. And here, my friends, is sort of a definitive reason why we know that Jesus is affirming both the Jews and the disciples' literal thoughts here and that realistic understanding of his words. Jesus could have and would have 
retracted back to the metaphorical meaning of eating and drinking as he already established in the prior context, if that's all he meant here with the words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Remember how I said a while ago, he said in verse 34 and 47, if you hunger, come to me. The implication being that you won't hunger anymore because by coming to me, you're eating me, right? If you're thirsty, believe in me. The implication being that you won't be thirsty anymore. And so therefore believing in Jesus is drinking. Jesus already established eating and drinking as figures of speech or metaphors for coming to him and believing in him. So when he's talking to his disciples who are walking away from him, if Jesus meant his words to be taken as a figure of speech, he could have very easily retracted back and said, hey guys, remember, I already told you what I meant by eating and drinking. All I mean is to come to me and believe in me. How would the disciples have responded to that? Do you think the disciples who were already believing in Jesus would have such a hard time with that teaching? No, the disciples would have said, hey Jesus. <laughs> That's all you mean by eat your flesh and drink your blood that we just need to come to you and believe in you? That's all you meant? Oh man, we, we were freaking out, Jesus. We we're about to leave you. Thank God that's all you meant. We have no problem with that. We're staying, Jack. Notice Jesus could have, and given the methodology of a good teacher, would have retracted back to that metaphorical meaning of eating and drinking if that's what he meant here in talking to his disciples. But Jesus didn't retract. He didn't go back to that metaphorical meaning of eating and drinking. And he let his disciples walk away, signaling to us, the reader friends, that Jesus intended these words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood to not be taken as a figure of speech, but rather to be taken with a realistic understanding. Now, of course, the question of how, Jesus does not reveal that yet. And that's where faith comes in. Jesus clearly says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. But the how, that's where they're going to have to hold on to the coattail of Jesus, so to speak. And Jesus asked the apostles themselves, turning to Peter and saying, will you leave me too? Think about that, friends. If Jesus meant by his words simply to come to him and believe in him, then why would Jesus be asking Peter and the apostles, will you leave me for me telling you to believe in me and come to me when you already believe in me and come to me? That doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus ask the apostles if they're going to leave him for believing in him when they were already believing in him? So surely Jesus's question to the apostles signals to us that he didn't mean his words as a figure of speech. He meant them in a realistic way. And of course, Simon Peter responds, how? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Translation, dude, I don't understand how in the world we go eat your flesh and drink your blood, but you said so and I believe it. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, in all seriousness, every single time we come to Mass, our Lord is asking you and me that very same question. Will you walk away from me as well? And so I think it's a 
good thing to ponder and meditate on. What's my response? How am I responding? Am I saying with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or am I walking away from our Lord with the multitudes in saying or in believing that's just a symbol of Jesus? That's it. Bread and wine, symbol of Jesus. Or are we walking with the apostles and our Lord and Holy Mother Church and affirming the body of Christ? Amen. I believe, not only I believe, but it is so. So it's an affirmation of truth that that's the reality present there. And that's what we're called to. That's part of, that's what this Eucharistic revival is all about to intensify and enhance our amen. You ain't got to say it all Pentecostal amen. You ain't got to do that, right? <laughs> but to be sincere in that amen, that yes, I believe it is so. So one reason to think that Jesus intended his words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John 6 to be taken with the re in a realistic way was that Jesus affirmed the literal thoughts of his audience, both Jews and disciples alike. Now here's another interesting detail that can shed some light upon what Jesus meant there and also at the Last Supper. Now, if you're following along your handout, you'll notice I'm kind of jumping around and swapping here. So I apologize for the conceptual restructuring. I'm just kind of following the spirit and where I need to go here. But notice in John chapter six, before Jesus started proclaiming the necessity to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he draws a parallel between the bread that he will give, which is his flesh, pointing to the Eucharist at the Last Supper, and what? the bread that they ate in the desert, the manna. Jesus intentionally wants to teach us something about the Eucharist in light of the manna of old. So what might that be? Let's think about it, shall we? If we zip back to Exodus chapter 16 and all throughout the Old Testament, we recognize some pretty interesting qualities about that manna, right? Was it ordinary bread or was it miraculous bread? It was miraculous. Appearing on the ground with the dew every morning for 40 years, providing them the physical nourishment that they needed. And they were instructed to collect only what was required for that day. And if they were to have collected more than required for that day, what would happen to the collected manna? It would breed worms and become foul. That ain't ordinary stuff, right? <laughs> it's pretty miraculous, man. And then when they would collect enough for the next day, so on Friday they were instructed to collect enough for both Friday and the Sabbath, because they were not to be collecting the manna on the Sabbath for the Sabbath rest, would the manna breed worms and become foul? Nope. That's pretty extraordinary. And this happened for 40 years and actually ceased to exist. It stopped, according to Joshua chapter 5, when they entered into the promised land. No more manna. And lastly, remember, God instructed Moses to take a bit of the manna and put it where? 
and the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told it lasted for generations unto generations. The manna of physical substance was not corrupting and remaining in existence for hundreds of years. And of course, we don't know if it's still in the Ark of the Covenant because Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant before the Babylonian captivity and exile. So we don't quite know, but we don't need that old Ark anymore because we got the new Ark of the Covenant. And who's that? That's Mary. Jesus is the contents of the vessel, right? Because remember in the old ark, you had the manna, the bread from heaven. That's Jesus, the new bread from heaven. You had the word of God on stone. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. And you had Aaron's rod that budded, symbolizing the high priesthood. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus is in whom? Which vessel? Mary. Mary's the new ark of the covenant. That's a whole nother talk for a whole nother time. Father, if you want me to come back and talk about that, I'd be more than happy. All right? Okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, the manna and the okay. miraculous bread. There we go. I, I, caught, I chased that little rabbit there. Now, in light of this parallel, Jesus is revealing to us, folks, that the Eucharist is the new manna for the new Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, St. Paul calls the Christian church the Israel of God. New manna for the new Israel of God as we're in this new wilderness of the journey of life, making our journey towards the new promised land, the true promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem, right? The heaven itself. So in light of this detail that the Eucharist is the new manna, this is evidence for us that the Eucharist is not merely a symbol. Also, whenever we're studying what we call biblical typology, you ever heard of that word typology? Okay, some of you. Typology is the study of types. So in the Bible, because it's a unified plan, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring the authors and God is leading the history of salvation from Adam and Eve to Jesus on through the church age, the things of the Old Testament, people, places, and events serve to be types of New Testament realities to come. And this is evident all throughout the New Testament itself. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, calls the Old Testament sacrifices shadows of the realities in the new. Jesus himself says, refers to himself as the new Solomon. Jesus himself in John two refers to his body as the new temple, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, okay? St. Paul refers to Jesus as the new Adam in Romans chapter five. So this is very prevalent in, in the earliest times of Christianity and the early Christians after the apostles continue to read the Bible in this way. Of course, you have the Passover lamb, a prefigurement of Jesus, behold the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The new lamb of God for the new Passover, for the new Israel of God, in their new exodus from the slavery of sin and the tyranny of the devil to the new life of heaven and in Christ, in light of the biblical typology, the New Testament fulfillment is always superior to the Old Testament type. To state it differently, the Old Testament type is always inferior to the New Testament fulfillment 
or to state it differently, the New Testament fulfillment is never inferior to the Old Testament type. You follow me so far? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So follow me. If the Eucharist is the new manna, well, then the Eucharist gotta cannot be inferior to the Old Testament type, right? Well, that Old Testament manna, that was some miraculous stuff, right? If the Eucharist were only bread, mere symbol, it's just bread, would the new manna be superior to the old or inferior? Superior if it's just bread? How is ordinary bread superior to miraculous bread? Ah, but on the supposition that it's only a symbol, it would be bread, right? But if it's only a symbol and just bread, well then folks, the new manna would be inferior to the old. I, you know, I kind of like to put it like this, like, Jesus, if that's just bread, man, you gave the miraculous stuff to the old Israel, you shortchanging us with just the regular bread. <laughs> now it takes on a new significance because it might Friends, the Eucharist is the heavenly bread of miraculous supernatural stuff. And what might that be? What's miraculous about the Eucharist? What's supernatural about the Eucharist? Well, now we have a fitting explanation to appeal to Jesus when he says, this is my body. What's miraculous about the Eucharist is that Jesus changed bread into his body and made his body substantially present under the appearance of the Eucharist, which is something in the physical cosmos that there is nothing like it anywhere else. There is nothing in the physical universe where you have the reality or the substance of something under the appearance of something else. That can only be accomplished by divine power. And so this supernatural context now of the new manna and the miraculous context and qualities of the new manna, it's fitting to interpret these words that Jesus actually gave us something miraculous and changed bread into his body and wine into his blood. Now it's reasonable to say, well, when Jesus says, this is my body, given the miraculous context of the new manna, we can easily say, yeah, it is his body rather than just saying, oh, it's just representing his body. Like when, if I pull out a picture of my wife, the reason why you would not conclude that I was somehow making my wife substantially present under the pixels of the phone is because I ain't no miracle worker, right? There's no supernatural context that would allow for you or even give reason for you to think that I was doing something miraculous by divine power. But if you have a miraculous context of this Eucharist being the new manna, which means it's going to be superior to that miraculous stuff in the Old Testament. And Jesus had just performed a miracle before even talking about giving us the bread of life, which is flesh. Remember the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes? John reports and records that event that Jesus performed that miracle right before he went to the synagogue in Capernaum and gave the promise to give us his flesh to eat. So you have that supernatural context. You have the new man of supernatural context. And so within this miraculous supernatural context, now the apostles would have good reason to think, oh, 
Jesus just made his body present. You mean to tell me the same body that is present before them at the table at the Last Supper and that that same body is under the appearance of bread being held in each of the hands of the apostles and being consumed? Yes, that's exactly what we believe. Given the evidence from the bread of life discourse shedding light on the words of the Last Supper. One last thought. And then we'll open it up for some Q&A. But somebody might say, well, wait a minute, Carlo, in the words of the Last Supper, especially in Luke's version of the Last Supper, Jesus tells the apostles to do this in remembrance of me. And if Jesus is merely telling them to perform the Last Supper in remembrance of him, well, then it follows that all Jesus means is for them to recollect and recall what Jesus did. And therefore, the bread and wine is just that, bread and wine. And it takes on a new significance or symbolic value by signaling or assigning the value of Jesus being our nourishment. That's all Jesus meant. And that's a, that's a good objection or counter to our interpretation of the text. And we need to seriously consider it. And by the way, I do so in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Combats to Catholic Arguments, which you can get at shop.catholic.com. It's part two of a series of books that I've wrote for the Catholic Protestant Conversation and Dialogue, trying to help Catholics teach them how to answer some of those very good questions that our Protestant friends ask us. And this is one of them. So what should we make of Jesus's words? Do this in anamnesis in Greek or remembrance of me. And I promise you this will serve to be an explosion of revelation and fruitful meditation for our experience of the mass. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he is intending to use the word anamnesis as a Jew would understand it, given the history of the liturgical celebration of the Passover, as opposed to a 21st century American who says, remember, meaning I'm just going to call it to mind. There's a distinction. There's an essential difference between the two understandings of remembrance. So for the Jews, their idea of remembrance, yes, does call to mind. It's an act of the mind to recollect about God's saving deeds in the past. But whenever those saving deeds are liturgically celebrated, it's a part of Jewish theology and understanding that those historical saving deeds of God are somehow made present to those celebrating the deeds, such that the participants in the liturgical celebration are present to those saving deeds, participating in those saving deeds. Even the ritual that the Father is to say for the, within the Passover liturgy or ritual or meal, as recorded in the book of Exodus and throughout all generations, the Father is to employ words of saying, when we came out of Egypt, when I was there, sort of a personal participation in those saving events. And even in the Mishnah, which is uh, the rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures and the scriptural texts, talk about the Jewish understanding of participating in the Passover event in a mystical way whenever it's liturgically celebrated. And it's against that background or that backdrop that Jesus, a good Jewish boy, 
says, do this in remembrance of me, anamnesis, which is a Greek word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to signify a memorial that's made present to God in heaven as an offering. So signifying that Jesus is commanding them to offer sacrifice, but more so the liturgical celebration making present the saving deed that is being remembered. In this case, the new Passover. Jesus, the, sacri the, the, the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God on the cross, whose blood enables for us who partake of it, for the angel of supernatural death to pass over us. And what do we do? We eat the flesh of the new lamb. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, the cross, therefore let us keep the feast, Holy Communion. As the old Passover, they had to not only sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood over the doorposts, but they had to eat the flesh of the lamb. And so too, for us, the new Israel of God, to experience this new Passover and the new exodus from the slavery of sin and the tyranny of the devil, we must eat the flesh of the new Passover lamb and partake of his blood. And that, my friends, is the significance of the remembrance. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Why? Because the body of Christ is made present. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Why? Because the blood of Christ is made present. And so the remembrance is not merely an intellectual recollection, but an intellectual recollection that makes that event mystically present for us to touch it in a sense, to have contact with it, to participate in it. Why? So that we can experience the fruits of that saving event where the merits of Jesus's death on the cross, that one death offered once and for all, according to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25, that one sacrifice is made present so that the graces are applied to us on an individual level as we come and celebrate the holy sacrifice of the mass. We say that because the one sacrifice of Christ, that historical event of God's saving deed is made present mystically on the altar when Father says, this is my body, and this is my blood. And brothers and sisters, we partake of the fruits of that sacrifice. And so hopefully, something that I've shared with you tonight will enhance an awareness, call to mind, sort of fan the flame, because I know you're all good Catholics and you all believe in the Eucharist, but hopefully to fan the flame a little bit to enhance our Eucharistic worship to reignite that fire and that zeal within us that whenever we come into the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, that we worship, we adore, and we love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our soul. Amen? Amen. All right.